Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 9, Episode 4. And this one was the case of Greg Lance, as presented by uh, host of the Undisclosed podcast, Miss Rabia Chowdhury, a uh, very good friend of mine. We've been we kind of got into this business together five years ago. And uh, as a quick refresher, this case was a double homicide in Collierville, Tennessee. Uh, the two victims' names were Victor and Ala Kaliznikow. Uh, it occurred on August fifth, nineteen ninety eight. Victor Kaliznikow was a nuclear scientist working for the government. Uh, he was also a, I don't know if landlord, slumlord is the right way to describe him, but he had a lot of properties and, and sounds like some pretty shady dealings with his property. Him and his wife were both shot to death in their sleep and their house burned down. And a man named Greg Lance was the only suspect that the police ever looked into and was convicted and has spent about 20 years in prison uh, since then. It's a very, very interesting case. Uh, I definitely highly recommend checking out Season 4 of Undisclosed. I think it's a 10-part series on the Greg Lance case. Very, very interesting case. We're going to try to break it down a little bit for you guys today. We are back in the studio. Uh, Mike and I have just spent the last eight days camping out in the National Forest in uh, or the Bureau of Land Management land in, in Wyoming. And uh, we're happy to be showered and back in the studio. That's right. Feels good to be back to civilization. Yeah, and joining us, and who missed us terribly, sitting across the table from me, is Mr. Zach Weaver. I did miss you guys a lot. We missed you too, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Bob, before we get into case questions, this question from listener Ashley says, This isn't case-related, but can you share a not-suitable-for-work story or any funny story from The Bachelor trip? Uh, yeah, for those of you that, that, that didn't know exactly... I think we explained it, but so Mike is is getting married this weekend, so we're, we're going to try to keep this episode tight, but because uh, we got a lot of work to do. Um, but yeah, so I'm Mike's best man, and, and instead of you know going to a, a strip club and drinking a bunch of booze, I hauled him out into the middle of the wilderness, right. <laughs> put him in a tent uh, for for eight days. Uh, we wanted it was the point of the trip was uh, an antelope hunt, 
and I'm not going to get into the hunting stuff with you guys. Um, I'm sure most of you aren't interested or aren't particularly fond of, of hunting, but the trip itself was, uh, I'm trying to think of, of, of a really good, funny story. That nothing was funny. We were so serious <laughs> the was, entire time. It was the worst experience. It was, it was boot camp. Yeah, it wasn't. The, I mean, it was the best. It's a, uh, another podcaster and outdoorsman that I that I, I really like, a guy named Steve Rinello, who hosts the Meat Eater podcast and TV show. He always says, you know, there's two different types of fun. There's a type of fun that's fun while you're doing it, and then doesn't matter later. And there's the type of fun that sucks while you're doing it. And there are great stories to tell for the rest of your life. Mm. Uh, and that's what this one, you know, the, the the earlier one there would be like riding a roller coaster. Like you never talk about the great experience you had on the roller coaster, but this trip we were we were in the suck. Yeah, we were in the suck. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is a much different type of hunting than you guys normally do. I mean, this was like hoofing it, right? Yeah. So we are, you know, for, for any of you that are hunters out here, out there, you know, we're we're from the Midwest in Michigan and out here, you know, we hunt deer. You know, you set up a blind and you sit and wait or you're in a tree stand. I'm a bow hunter. So I, you know, sit in a tree stand with a bow and arrow and wait for a deer to walk by. Uh, this is very different. You, you, you put a pack on your back that weighs 50 pounds with all the gear you have in it. And then you hike through the mountains for, we, we put in over 40 miles of hiking, learned that we are in terrible shape. And as much as we thought we might've got ourselves into shape, that really wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the first, plus there's no air up there, seems like compared to here, we were only at about 4,000 feet. So it wasn't like super high, big mountains, mm-hmm. but tough to breathe. But yeah, so yeah, every day. So you're, you're out hiking, trying to find, find animals and stalk them. And then when, when you get one. I'm like here where you drive your ATV out and haul it back to the house. You quarter up all the meat in the field and to put them into meat bags and put them on your pack and then come back out with now another 60 pounds of meat in your pack when you hike back through the mountains to get back to back to camp. So, yeah, but it, it was it was not, I think, what we expected. We had we, we brought a bought a brand new deck of cards for the, for the trip. Yeah, we we're going to play some euchre or something yeah. on our downtime. There was no downtime. None. Yeah. None. We would get back, you know, we would leave it. We'd get up at four 30 in the morning and, you know, have a cup of coffee and, you know, I you know, and everything is complete remote. So it's like a jet boil with boil water and instant coffee and then go hike all day, get back at dark at seven, eat. I'm so, if I had never seen another freeze dried meal in the rest of my life, I'll be happy. <laughs> me too. Yeah. We ate a lot of freeze dried food. Mike was telling me this morning how much he was able to push himself past where he thought he would quit. Too, yeah. Which is really interesting to hear. And that, that was the, the cool thing about it when it's done is I, I made a Facebook post yesterday with some of the pictures and said, you know, it's, I doubt years from now I'll be talking to my grandkids about the, the mule deer buck I shot. It, but what I'll be talking about, you know, stories of brotherhood and perseverance because my actual brother, Brent, went with and another good friend of ours, Ray, it was the four of us that went and, yeah, I mean, you're walk. It was like everyone pushing each other because you'd start hiking, and you're carrying all this weight going up a hill, and you feel like you're gonna die. But it's just like I, I kept saying, my mantra was just one foot in front of the other, mm-hmm. one foot in front of the other. It's kind of a a good mantra in life, you know. As, as miserable it is, if you just keep taking one step and then another step, and and for me, my trick was I'd look out, you know, the three miles away to wherever I'm trying to get. And it looks so far away. I would just always turn around and look behind me and see. Well, but look how far you've already come. Uh, so it, it was. It, it was a very de- definitely would take that over. You know, going to a bar or something. You know, and it was we unplugged from our cell phones. So if you guys noticed, we weren't on social media at all. We had no. We had no phones. I loved that. Yeah, I loved that. <laughs> As I get older, I'm, I'm kind of turning into a hermit. Yeah, and I just really related well with that. It was so nice to clear my head and 
It was just a really much appreciated escape yeah. from the overstimulation of a screen in my face all day, every day. Right. And anyone I know being able to contact me at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was nice. It was refreshing. Yeah. And especially with the, with the election going on and kind of how ugly social media is right now, it was, it was really cool to be able to separate from all that. Uh, but yeah, we'd get back to camp every night. And our plan was, you know, there's nothing to do, right? There's no TV. There's no phones. So, you know, we'll get back to camp, have dinner, and we'll we'll sit down and maybe have a couple beers and play play some cards in the tent. We were in bed by 8.30 every night. Yeah, just, just gassed. Yeah. And there were some funny things. So I had, you ever, Zag, have you ever slept in one of those um, mummy sleeping bags? Mm-mm. Can't say that I have. Oh. So, so, mind you, at night, it was getting down to, the coldest night, I think, got down to 25 degrees. And then on top of that, there was 35 mile an hour winds. And this tent was completely, it was a screen tent, the whole thing screen. And then there's like a rain cover that goes over the top. So there's a gap. And so it was just it was freezing and heater. We had little portable heaters, did nothing. It just went right out. But I had this mummy sleeping bag, which is one where you zip, it's a side zip. And when you close it up, it goes over your head. It's just like a hole over your face. So I was like, that'll be nice. Keep me warm. Wood, except for I'm kind of a big fella. <laughs> I, I, well, I'll post this on my Instagram on Friday when this airs. So you guys can see the picture. So it it would get up to about the shoulder. Now, imagine this thing zips up to here, and I'm trying to get one arm in and zip, but my shoulders are too big, and I can't get it. And at one point, the zipper stuck, and at one point, I was, I was uh, hopping around through the, <laughs> through the tent trying to, get the, trying to get the zipper up. And, you know, one of the most... Uh, I could have swore you were on one leg in there. Because <laughs> right, it goes down to a point. Yeah. It's in my feet. And, I'm like, God dang. and you're bouncing and keeping your balance. So upset. It was so cold. I just wanted to be warm. Uh, you definitely learn to appreciate the little things because we, uh, little things like say, say at two in the morning, you have to pee at home. Mm-hmm. You just get up and walk into the bathroom. Well, out there at two in the morning, I'm, I'm, I'm on a cot that's four inches from the ground, which is like getting in and out of a bathtub. It's a pain in the ass and in that mummy bag. So it's like unzipping, trying to get out of the bag. Trying to roll out of bed to get some shoes on so you can unzip the tent and where everybody's freezing and stumble outside to go to the bathroom and go back in and go through the whole procedure again to zip it back up. So it was uh, all all those little things where Mike and I, you know, the freeze dry we said got really old. It's good, but it just you get sick of it. And Mike and I snuck burritos in one day. How'd you guys manage that? (laughs) <laughs> we went an hour into town and back. We went an hour into town for burritos. Well, yeah. no, it was that wasn't exactly true. So we were, you know, we weren't having any luck in the property we were on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's limited access to public access, public lands to hunt on. And so we got in the truck and like we're going to start driving and hitting, checking out other areas of public land. And that led us all the way down. We're like, well, shit, we're almost to town. We can stop in here and and fill up with gas. You know, and then and then it was like, you know, there's a. It's a Qdoba right there. <laughs> so we we went to Qdoba and and got some amazing and you've never heard this is like six days in. So if you can imagine the two of us driving down the road eating Qdoba burritos, just oh my god, oh it's so good, it's so the flavors, vegetables. But but then we we ran while we were there, we ran to the grocery store and it's like you know what we had a little miniature Blackstone grill at the camp. Which we were, you know, we were eating, we were eating game. You know, I caught, caught some rainbow trout. We got some animals. So we ate, you know, so we ate some tenderloin. We ate some heart, you know, different, you know, stuff we were, we were hunting. We were eating at camp. 
Uh, but it, it's just literally a piece of meat thrown on a grill and you eat it with your fingers. This is all we were doing. So I was like, you know, why we're here, let's get some hamburger patties and some hamburger buns. And we'll go back to camp and make these guys burgers. A little less Neanderthal. Yeah. And so we, we, we get that stuff. But then we also get the burritos because it's an hour drive back to the campsite. So we eat the burritos. And I'm telling Mike the whole time, Mike, you're going you're gonna to shut the fuck up and eat that hamburger. You cannot <laughs> tell them that we ate burritos. And then we got back and they were like, oh, we just made, uh, we, we made uh, venison backstraps and tenderloins. And then, well, where's ours? And they, they ate it and didn't save any for us. So I, I, for Brent and Ray, for, I don't know, 20 minutes, just kept telling them how they hurt my feelings by eating without us when we were out getting them this delicious meal of food, which now they didn't want to eat because they were full. Mm, and, shame on you. And then right when it got to the, to the point where they were absolutely ashamed of themselves, I said, we did get those burritos, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Other than that, uh, yeah, there's, you know, they say what an NSFW, which I had to look up, means uh, not suitable for work stories. Uh, they're not suitable for work for a reason, which is why we're not going to tell you on here. And with that being said, I think we should probably get into the, get into the case in the interest of trying to make this a tight episode that I've already rambled on for 10 minutes. That last part you said made zero sense, by the way. I don't know what you not suitable for work, so we're not going to say it here. Yeah, this is work. This is our work. Is that what it is? Yeah, this is our work. I see. (laughs) Yeah. If it's not suitable for work, then we're not going to put it on the podcast. Okay, Bob, I've got a couple questions for you about the case. So I'm kind of unfamiliar with this case. So what evidence did they have that was presented against Greg? Not, not, I mean, I know there was a witness that kind of led him to Greg, but what, how did they convict him? What evidence was presented against him? Well, I mean, the witness didn't even lead him to Greg. I mean, they just literally, from my understanding, they picked him out because he had a motive because they were the, the Kolesnikows, mm-hmm. trying to pronounce their name right, uh, was they were, they were trying to foreclose on his property. Well, I believe they said the sister just brought up his name because they had a case, they had a, a trial or something. Some kind of hearing. Yeah. Hearing. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they just looked at him, and, you know, they, in, and uh, Rabia mentioned the, the lead where a, a cop saw a pickup truck driving away, and they never even looked into it. And so the evidence at trial was, it was just was nothing. I mean, it, it was, it was they, which they later found who Rabia had touched on, but all these witnesses have since recanted and said the police coerced them into making these statements. A lot of them were, his, were Greg's friends. We've seen the same thing as what we saw in Adon's case, as what we saw in Jesse Eldridge's case before we got, you know, re, we got re, Troy to recant. You know, we, we see it all the time in uh, big time in season seven, our season seven, Jamie Snow's case. Mm-hmm. When they have no evidence, they just start leaning on people with maybe questionable backgrounds and and get them to. to st- and, and even though they weren't saying he confessed or he just said that, you know, they, they got them to testify that he was mad and that he was looking for a gun. And the only piece of physical evidence they used to tie Greg to this crime was a piece of P-cord, paracord, what we call call it, it, that was on the murder weapon when it was found. It was just like, it looked like it was a makeshift gunsling. They had just taken paracord and, and tied it onto the gun so you could sling the gun over your shoulder. And they had one of the witnesses say that Greg had that same cord at his house when they were doing fireworks. And, there, and, and there's no forensics to match, no fiber matching, nothing like that. Just a guy said, I saw that kind of cord at Greg's house. And paracord's pretty easily accessible. I mean, it's that's everywhere. Kind of dime a dozen. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we used in our trip, we went through tons of it mm-hmm. just for very, I always keep, I always call it P cord, but I always, I always keep paracord laying around. It's cheap. You can get it at freaking Walmart or wherever, and it, it, it has a lot of uses. So that was the only 
physical evidence that tied him to him. And that was in the face of evidence that pointed away from him. You know, the big one was the, the fingerprints. You know, the gun had, um, and if you go to the undisclosed website, you can see photos of uh, the actual murder weapon, the gun that was found, the Tech 9. It's a, it's a Tech 9 with a flashlight duct taped to it. And they, you know, they, they did good forensic work where they opened it up and tested the, and, and dusted the, the flashlight batteries for fingerprints and found fingerprints on the gun and the batteries that didn't match Greg. And they're just like, oh, well, doesn't matter. That was it. I mean, that was, that was basically the entirety of the case against him. And the um, the motive thing, even as we mentioned on the on the on the show with Rabia, you know, yes, they were foreclo- they were trying to foreclose on his property, but they were also trying to foreclose on a dozen other properties. And that was they were, you know, I hate to speak badly of the of the victims, but they were they were scammers. You know, that's what they would that's what they would do is. And for those of you that don't understand what a land contract is, basically, it's owner finance. Instead of going to the bank and getting a mortgage, I say, well, I'll sell you my house, and I'll be the bank. You give me a ten thousand dollar down payment. And then you pay me this much a month for ten years, and then the property's yours. But then if it's foreclose, you know, if something happens and they foreclose on it, then they just take the property back. Just just like with a mortgage, they don't give you the money back that you paid; they just take the house back. So they would do that, and then try to find reasons to foreclose, so they could then they now they've got the money, and then they would resell the same property again to someone else and keep going through this process. So they were doing the same thing with with not only Greg Lance but the horns across the street. Several other properties, but the only difference between them and Greg was Greg was educated, had lawyers, and was like in the process of there was no reason as far as motive is concerned for him to kill them because I mean he had a, a hearing date coming up where he was proving that he had not violated the contract and they could not foreclose on the house. He was actually in better shape than than anyone else. So Rabia seems pretty convinced that it's the neighbors across the street, the horns. Right. What has led her to believe that? I mean, what evidence do we have that that, that could be? There's some some evidence that we're going to get into with some of these questions as we move on. But a lot of it was just witnesses that came out of the woodwork. And that's one, some of the powerful things about these types of podcasts with ours with Truth and Justice when we're doing our long-form cases with Undisclosed and other podcasts like that is as soon as you know word got out that people were looking into the case because you know, we look at it we're always like well why didn't someone come forward mm-hmm. well it's because you're in like this bubble right you in, in the in the in the minute in the in the workings of an investigation you don't actually know what's happening you, know, you just know the police are investigating you don't know what's important and what's not important but then when rabia and susan and collins are talking about the show these witnesses come forward and say I, I don't know why they were after greg i told the police that it was it was the horn i was there and, and now it, it, it's come out. I think there are four, maybe five witnesses that have all come forward and said they were that, that they 100 percent know that it was the Horn family that went in and killed them. And some of them were at the house when it happened. So, I mean, you've got I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. You got a, you got a guy sitting in prison for 20 years with zero evidence against him that they were just able to convince a jury he did it. And then you got all these people coming out with no none of them, as Robbie said, none of them know Greg. They're not trying to help Greg. They're just like, hey, I was at the Horns house and they killed him. We all know. I mean, it wasn't even like not common knowledge. We all knew that they were the ones that did it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch-ch-ch-chum. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details it just seems strange to me because i know we tend not to lean on eyewitnesses too much right so i mean is there physical evidence some uh, so I, I'm, I'm trying not to get ahead because we only have a couple of questions we're going to get to. So I guess, Mike, why don't you read Brian's question and that'll that'll answer your question too, Zach. So Brian says, do you know if they had serial numbers on the gun found? And if so, were they checked by the police? Okay, so the gun was found about a mile away from the crime scene on the side of the road. Just, just laying on the side of the road, the Tech 9 with a heat shield and the flashlight taped to it. And it did have a serial number on it to answer that question. To answer your question, Zach, so the serial number led the police to the registered owner. And the owner said that he had sold it to a guy named Robert Shepard. And he's got owned a gun and auto trading shop. And then uh, that guy, Robert Shepard, told the police that the gun was stolen in a robbery. But we know he's lying. At least how Robbie explained it to me. The, the guy's lying because what they know from other witnesses is that he actually traded that gun to Sam Horn. So through the serial number tracing back to, it seems to me like kind of like a pawn shop yeah. type place where the, the guy that had the gun registered him took it to a pawn shop or his trading post type place. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that, that guy, Robert Shepard, then traded it to Sam Horn, the guy that lived across the street. But he told the police that, that it got stolen. But then there's more to that gun also, and they, and they really get into the details on Undisclosed. And one of the horns, I think it was Sam Horn, actually drew a picture of a gun that one of the other horns had. And he draws this picture, and then you look, it, it, it's, it's the Tech 9 It's the same thing. It, it, it was a very distinct-looking gun. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, as you corrected me this morning, it's not a Uzi. <laughs> I was thinking of a Mac-10. Yeah. Um, but it's, so if, if you imagine a, there's like a normal pistol, except where, where the magazine that holds the rounds would go into the handle. Instead of going into the handle, the magazine is longer, holds more rounds and it clips in, in front of the trigger guard. So it kind of looks like an Uzi. It looks like it's a handle you could hold in front. And then they got a little bit longer barrel with like a heat shield, like you'd see on, on, uh, like an AR 15 or something yep. on the front. This is a pretty unique gun. He draws the picture. And says that that gun was. This is before they found the gun. It, it, it basically, the way I I, I I understood it from looking through the documents on the website, it looks as though they were asking the horns, "Do you have any guns?" And he's like, "Oh, well, we got this, you know, clawed horn or whichever one of the horns has one that looks like this." And then there were and there were also multiple witnesses that all reported seeing that gun, the, the actual murder weapon, the Tech Nine. That we know from that was traded to Sam Horn by this Robert Shepard. Multiple people that said that yes, that was that gun was at the Horns. We just shoot it in the backyard. They, they all knew that it was the Horns' gun. Okay, well that's pretty damning evidence right there. You'd think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And as far as the eyewitness statement you made, you know, for, we don't rely on eyewitness testimony a lot. It depends on. It, it's very unreliable when someone says, "I saw the man 
that shot him and saw him run away. And he was six foot three with brown hair and blue eyes. And the next guy says he was five foot eight with blonde hair and brown eyes. You know, it goes details. People don't pick up details. It's a different thing than I was at the house the day they went across the street and killed the man. You know, there, there's not like a whole lot of detail there or, or, or some kind of superfluous thing that happened or innocuous thing that happened throughout the evening. Like, yeah, I do remember at 10 p.m. that Sam went outside and was gone for an hour. I mean, it was just very clear. We were there and he's like, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch and went across the street, killed him, lit it on fire. You know, so that, so it wasn't, so I mean, it could be that he's lying, but as far as the reliability of the detail of what he's saying, it's all pretty obvious stuff. Katie says, do you think someone had a connection to the Horn family and was protecting them all along? It doesn't sound like they were adequately checked out when they had the same motive as Greg. That's a good question. I, because that's one thing I don't understand about this case. And, and I did listen to this series in the podcast last year when it aired, but I don't, I, I can't remember those details. So it, I think I'm going to go back there and listen through again or talk to Robbie about it. But I believe there was some sort of connection to the horns and law enforcement. I think, you know, they were running a meth house and, and there may have been some cops that were involved with that, but it sure does seem like they were protected. I mean, you know, just like any other case, right? You start in the inner circle and work out. I'm sure you have a motive, but I mean, literally, they don't have any family around, so in their in live in a remote area. Well, maybe let's check out the people that are directly across the street. And oh, there's the people across the street that are being foreclosed on by these people. You know, there was a lot of reason to look at the horns, and they never did. So I, I I'm curious as well. I don't have the answer to that question. All I can tell you is it seems to me that for some reason, yeah, they were protected. So you were also brought in because of your past professional life as an arson investigator mm-hmm. to kind of help Robbie with this case a little bit. Is right. that correct? Yeah. And one of the things that's kind of questioned about this is why the fire was set at that house. Is do you any reason why that fire would be set? So why it was set, or how, to, or why do we know that it was set? Well, we, I mean, we know it was set clearly. They burned yeah. the house down, but right. but like, is there a reasoning why and like how they could have got away with that? Yeah. Well, the I mean, when we when we study arson investigation, there are, you, you have categorized motives. You know, people usually will will light a fire for some sort of compulsion, which is rare. Mm-hmm. And typically it is for revenge, money, or to conceal evidence are, are the main mo- when we When we look at, so when we go to a house in, you know, in the many houses that I've investigated that had burned, you know, so we're, we're looking at the evidence to, to see if there's indications that it was not a, a naturally occurring fire, that it was, that it was set. And, and there's, there's, there is forensic evidence that, you know, there's arson investigation is something a lot of people say is junk science. And it's kind of become that. I don't disagree with that. But the reason for that is because overzealous arson investigators try to tell you that they know things that they can't know. You know, so, you know, to say that, oh, it was, it was the, the fire was started this way at this time. And this is the person that did it. I can tell you can't tell that. Mm-hmm. But, you, but what you can say is in this case, it was very obvious when I looked at the. Um, the case file and the crime scene photos and went through the arson investigators report. I, I, as I remember correctly, the report wasn't that fantastic, but you could tell from the photos uh, we're looking for things like low burn. What's the difference? You know, low, obviously fire heat goes up. And, and so you're looking for the lowest place. There should be, what we call like a V pattern, right? So if a fire in this room starts in that corner, you know, in, in the whole room burns down, as you break it down and can li- even sometimes will like lean, like if, if part of the wall collapses, put the wall back up and look for patterns. You'll watch this pattern of burn and char go down to the point where it started at the low burn point. 
And then you have to differentiate between that and what we call drop down. So say as the ceiling's collapsing, something on fire drops down to the ground and, and, and cause a, a false low burn. In this case, what you ha- what you you'd see very clearly is you had uh, an explosive event where there's low burn in multiple posi- multiple places. You have multiple points of origin, which you don't have with a naturally occurring fire. You have a fire that's like say an electrical problem. It starts at that outlet and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds out. You have evidence that the entire house lit up at the same time, which is ev- which is indicative of a, of an accelerant. So you start seeing things like that. Okay, there was an accelerant. Now, in this case, it was pretty obvious why it happened because there was two dead bodies in there with bullet holes in them. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the motive, you know, go back to kind of our analogy, like our normal house fire that I'd be investigating without dead bodies. Well, we start looking into, okay, this, this fire was not naturally occurring. There's multiple points of origin. There's multiple low burn points. You know, the, the path of travel of the fire doesn't make sense. And, and then it's okay. Well, but if it was a, an arson, why would they do this? And then you start to find out, oh, the house was being foreclosed on and they were broke and they needed the insurance money. You know, so, the, so that's that money motivation. And then the other, I've, I had this happen a couple of times. One time was a car fire, car lit on fire. We put the fire out and opened the trunk up and there was a dead body in the trunk. And that's the other, the other major one you see is usually it's for the most common is for insurance purposes. Sometimes it's for revenge. In this case, the reason the fire was set was to destroy evidence. And the idea is people who, you know, maybe don't quite understand forensics or fire science very well would think that, okay, I shot them in the head. But then if I light the fire, if I light the house on fire, their bodies will be completely burned and no one will know they were shot is what they would, th- they would think. They think the bodies would be consumed. They would assume there was just a naturally occurring fire and they burned up in the fire is why the fire was set. Um, and I think that was clearly what it, there, there was. It was for con- evidence concealment. Didn't work. Obviously, the bodies were there. All, quick autopsies showed that they were shot. What I didn't realize until I was doing a little bit of research before we came in here to record today was that there was actually seven shell casings uh, found in the house. Because so, I, I, in my mind, I always thought it was they were each shot like once in the head, mm-hmm. but that's not the case. There were seven shots fired. How many were there? Multiple wounds, or what? I mean, did they I don't just... know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I should. I did at one point. Mm-hmm. I don't remember now. And like I said, the way I remembered it, it was more. I remember thinking it was more like execution style. And I might have been leaning more towards the whole, uh, you know, nuclear scientist working for the government. It's a very kind of sexy story, but that. Doesn't appear to be the case. Uh, they were, like I said, se- seven casings were found in the house. So seven shots were fired. I don't know if they were hit with all seven. All right. And our last question comes from Lisa. Could you address the pics of the gasoline can found at the crime scene, the testimony from the people that were there, and where they think the can eventually ended up? Because to me, that was the real game changer. Yeah. So as we were talking here, the, you know, the, the final conclusion was that it was clearly an arson and it was set with an accelerant, which, again, is pretty easy to tell because floors don't burn you know when you go to a house and the floor is charred but then you know there's one foot up the wall isn't charred it's pretty clear there was an accelerant put on the floor so so someone poured gasoline throughout the house and lit it on fire so in the in the photos that they have in evidence there was a plastic gas can that was that was found at the crime scene that was taken photos of and logged into evidence there was also from what witnesses say like a rusty metal gas can at the scene, as the police were there, you know, the fire department had the fire out. The police are there investigating that Peggy Horn from across the street walked over and told police, that's our antique gas can. I need that back and took the fucking gas can back to her. And the police just let her take it. 
That seems really strange to me. It's a house that was lit on fire with gas. Yeah. And the neighbor across the street who's being, whose house is being foreclosed upon walks over and grabs the gas can and says, oh, this is mine, and walks across the street. Wow. And it was never logged into evidence. All right. Well, that's it for questions. Thanks, everybody, for writing in. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We're going to, like I said, we're keeping this tight. We have uh, Mike and I have to go pick up our tuxedos this afternoon. That's the right. Last podcast you're able to record as a, as a single man, Mike. Sweet. Go we'll sow some oats at the tuck shop. Right. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Mike. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.